This past week, I finished a book. It was by a man named Tim Challies, and Tim Challies is an excellent author, and, and actually, uh, he was recommended to me to read by, by Miss Palmer, and she said, I think you'd really like this guy, and I read some of his stuff and then found out a little bit of his life, and he wrote a book that was entitled Seasons of Sorrow, and the book is actually his diary of of what he wrote following one, the one year after his 20-year-old son unexpectedly and tragically went to heaven. His son was engaged. He was at college. He was looking forward to a life of ministry and serving Jesus. And in just a moment, he fell dead. And this book, Seasons of Sorrows, was his writings of the year following his son's Death, And if you've ever experienced the death of a child or the death of a very close loved one, I could not recommend this book anymore to you. It was so encouraging to my own heart as he offered a window of his grief. But the final entry in the book was written on the anniversary of his son's death. And he wrote in this passage, he wrote that someone had recently asked him what he had learned over the past year. And his answer was simple, and I'm going to read it. He said, life on this side of glory is a journey towards heaven filled with working and weeping. Every joy is tempered by sorrow, and every rest by the knowledge that the work must go on. And then he made this statement, and I, I've not been able to shake it. Even as I put my hand on the plow, it can only ever be one hand, for I must keep my other hand free to wipe away the tears. And I'm sure that many of you can relate with that. Working and weeping. Life doesn't stop in moments of tragedy. Losing a child doesn't keep you from being a spouse. It doesn't keep you from being a parent to the living children. It, it doesn't stop you from being a disciple of Jesus in your church and an employee wherever you're working. Life continues, but life in its labor now is matched with weeping. The question facing us as believers is, does God know we are weeping while we're working? And does he care? And why does he even let sorrow happen, and what is he doing about it? And I'm sure so many of you can relate with those questions. And something I hope you notice today as we step in week number two into the book of Exodus is the story of God's people from long ago has been a story of working and weeping. But I also hope that you see that in the midst of working and weeping, God has cared for, loved, provided, and blessed, and delivered his people. So I, my, my desire today is for you to find great rest in knowing the character of the God that we're going to look at in the book of Exodus is the same God with the same character that is working today in our midst. And as we work and weep, hey, he's working in a way that will one day wipe every tear from our eyes. 
which is why I knew what I was preaching on. And so when we're talking about singing about standing before him and seeing who he is and praising his name, that is a day we're looking forward to with great longing because we understand the struggles that we face today. So if you're with us for the first time, we started the book of Exodus last week, and we, we just barely got a few verses in, but I'm going to back up just a bit to verse number seven, which is the final verse that we got to last week, just do a quick review to help us understand uh, where we're going. And, and what, our, what we're trying to do is we're looking for themes, we're looking for the echoes of Exodus that run throughout Scripture. And we finished with this verse last week, and we were able to connect it backwards to Adam and Noah, and we were able to connect it forwards to Jesus, right? Backwards to Adam when he said, when God said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, but in the garden they sinned and brought a curse. Backwards to Noah when God cleansed the earth and said to Noah, be fruitful and multiply, but the descendants of Noah chose not to spread out, but to stay together, build a tower, and bring a curse. And so for the third time, God doesn't tell a man be fruitful and multiply because he's seen the frailty of humanity. Instead, God takes a man named Abraham and says, I will make you fruitful. And in this covenant with Abraham, God takes the work of being fruitful upon Himself, And so what we're looking at in Exodus chapter 1 is we're seeing that God is true to his word because these are the descendants of Abraham that are being fruitful. They are multiplying, but not because of anything they've done, but because of everything God has done. Which then allows us to connect it forward to Jesus when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches, abide in me, and I abide in you and if we are in one another, you will bear much fruit. Fruitfulness, once again, comes from the vine, not from the branches, comes from the vine. And so we, we took this away last week that we'll never be fruitful as spouses or parents or disciples of Jesus unless we're connected to the vine because fruitfulness is not our work. I can't be fruitful. I will fail like Adam and Noah did, but God can be fruitful. And he promised to do so if I connected, stay connected to the vine. It is God's work. But, but as we see here in Exodus chapter 1, verse number 7, there's, there's a little bit added to it. They're fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied. And notice it says they grew exceedingly strong. Now, that wasn't something promised to Adam and Noah. This is the work of God. He's, they're, they're also becoming strong, and that causes a problem to the people around them, specifically to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Because when God's people are strong, we become a threat to the world. Don't miss that, church family. When God's people are strong, we become a threat to the world. And so what does Pharaoh do? Well, verse number eight says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. He's scared of them. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, 
We've got we've to go back to thinking on how we read the Bible, and we're looking for themes. We're looking for echoes, because when we hear an echo, it helps us connect to the past of Scripture, or maybe forwards in Scripture, and then to our life presently. And here is a, an echo. And it's found in the description of the king. It says in verse 10, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Now, can you think in your mind of anyone or maybe anything that has already taken place in Scripture that would be, that would, that would be called shrewd or crafty? We go back to Genesis 3, right? The serpent in the garden was more subtle or crafty than any other beast. So the author of Exodus is connecting the king of Egypt to the serpent in the garden. So, so as we read, our eyes need to be open. And we'll make this connection, so now in the end of verse 10, so we, look what, so we understand what we're looking for. At the end of verse 10, we see the ultimate desire of the king of Egypt. And it says... We don't want them to escape. Notice the last couple words of verse 10. We don't want them to escape from the land. This, this cues us in to what the battle of Egypt, to the battle of the Exodus is really all about. And it helps us know the connection between Pharaoh and the serpent. And the connection is both the serpent and Pharaoh attacked God's word. See, we, go, we know the serpent, right? He goes to Eve and he says, has God said, did God really say that? You shall not surely die. That was what the serpent said. Now the Pharaoh is saying, we cannot let them escape the land. Now, wait a second. Do you remember last week when we looked at the promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis chapter number 15? God told Abraham, your people will go to a land that is not theirs. They will be servants. They will be afflicted. And I will bring them back to this land in 400 years. Huh. So we have, we have Pharaoh saying they can't leave our land. And we have God saying, oh, they're going to come back to this land. Which tells us the Exodus account is nothing more than an other showdown between the crafty serpent and God's people and the truth of God's word is on the line. Will God be true to what he said? So, how's Pharaoh going to foil God's word? We'll look at verse number 11. It says, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Okay, so you see how difficult Pharaoh's trying to make it. You're not going to leave this land. I am going to pour burdens 
upon you that you cannot even begin to imagine. And here's the thing. As Pharaoh seeks to afflict the people with great burdens, this is the working and the weeping, the working and the weeping. As Pharaoh afflicts them with great burdens, ha, he has no idea. His actions are actually bringing about the fulfillment of God's word. Because God had already said 400 years ago, oh, these people, they'll be in a land that is not theirs. They're going to serve and they will be afflicted. Which means that if the people of God knew what, the, what God had said to Abraham in this covenant, they could look at the affliction that's coming upon them and say with great certainty, I wouldn't want this, but this is exactly what God said would happen. We can trust the word of our God. Yeah, but the people who didn't know the word of God would look at it as nothing more than, oh, this stinks. This is terrible. Man, what is the deal? Why is it so hard? The question is, do you know God's word? You know why many believers struggle so much when they go through a trial in their life? It's because they have no idea what the word of God says about trials. Sometimes we think that, oh man, I don't understand why I'm working and weeping and God doesn't care about me and he's left me out to dry. And what we don't understand is that it is, it is in our afflictions and it is in our trials and it is in our tragedies where we most clearly see God's faithfulness to his promises. How can how can Jesus ever be the shepherd who walks us through the valley of the shadow of death if we never face death? So how do you know the shepherding presence of Jesus if you don't experience something you'd never ask for for yourself? How do we ever understand the joyful peace that Jesus offers in Matthew 11 when he says, hey, you who are weary and are heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. How are you going to experience rest if you live in comfort and ease? How will we ever be able to fulfill 2 Corinthians 1, which says that you are to comfort others with the comfort you have received if you've never received comfort? What's the point in Jesus even sending the Holy Spirit as our comforter if we never need it? See, we, we as believers, we as Christians, we want everything to be easy, but we miss going to the scriptures and realize God's kingdom is upside down. The way up in the kingdom is down. The way to greatness is through service. The way to life is is through death. The way to abundance is generosity. Like everything is upside down. We, we get to the place of joy by traveling the path of sorrow. But you know what believers do on the path of sorrow? This. Dude, I hate this. Why do I have to walk this path? This is terrible. You, you know, that's what we say. But you know what I love to hear? is when believers get to that place of joy and they look back at their path of sorrow and they say words like this, I never, I never would have chosen that for myself, but I would never trade what I have now 
for what I used to be. I, I just recently spoke to a young man who was in the youth group when I was the youth pastor and another ministry. And when he was 14 years old, he was diagnosed with leukemia. 14 years old, leukemia. He had two strokes at the age of 16. One that left him partially paralyzed on one side of his body. And I talked to him this week, and these were his words. I never would have wanted this for myself, but in all that God has taught me through this, I would never trade it back. Come on now. How would he see that if he had not walked through leukemia and strokes? Man, but we sure struggle with, with this. But Jesus makes it so clear, right? He gives us, as he's talking to his disciples, he's about to leave and he gathers his disciples and we get to read so much of this in the book of John. But, but Jesus says this in John chapter 16, verse number 21. I think it's so fitting for today as we remember Sanctity of Life Sunday. This is what he says. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Like, how many of you ladies would say labor was tough? Would you raise a hand? Okay, great. I mean, I would agree with that. It was tough. <laughs> I could not hear the TV uh, when I was sitting in the room while Jamie was going through labor. Like, and I was like, this is, would you keep it down over there? I mean, like, I would like to watch the game in peace, right? It was tough. Just like this afternoon will be too, uh, right? So, look, I could already tell you're such a anyway um labor's tough but what does the rest of the verse say but when she has delivered the baby she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world like i'm obviously i don't know what the pains of childbirth are like but here's what i've been told it is the most it is the worst pain anyone has ever gone through ever but here's what i also know women do it again do you know why because what they received on the other side of the pain of labor was of such joy that they said i don't even think about that anguish anymore like, look at, I know my mom experienced this for sure. Uh, I'm just kidding. I just get my, my mom. All right. Uh, but but these, these women, like they, they'll have child and then another child, another child, because the joy that we get from a baby is so much greater that we look back on the pain and say, I would do it again if I can receive this joy. And that is what we have to understand as believers. This is the kingdom of God. Yes, our lives are filled with pain and sorrow and grief. And sometimes the enemy wants to use those moments to defeat and discourage us. But, but as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, which is where we need to be as believers, the sufferings of this present world are now worthy to be compared for the glories to come. 
So as we walk down the path of sorrow, and we don't enjoy it, I'm not saying it's easy, but we keep our eyes and our ears pointed to the King of Kings, knowing there will be a day, ha, I will see him as he is. And when I see Jesus in all of his glory, all of these struggles here on earth that I complain about now will be nothing keep that in mind we are going to one day kneel before the king who has given us everything and i know some of you are carrying deep grief and it's a daily wait for you but please return daily to the truth of what your end will be tim challies wrote this in this book He, he said every day again remember he lost his 20 year old son Every day I remind myself of the reality of a heavenly reunion yet to come. But I must daily decide how I will live in the meantime. Do I live as if I cannot go on? Do I live engulfed in the sorrow of losing my son? Or do I live reminding my heart each day that Jesus is with me, for me, holding me, empowering me, and blessing me in my grief? Do I live as if Jesus is enough to get me through today? Because if I can believe that, then God can work in the midst of my grief. And that is so true for every one of us. It it is those who have experienced tragedy and have continued to remain faithful. They provide a window for others to see the truth, the reality of God's promises in difficult moments, of God's presence when we feel forgotten, of God's grace when we need it most, and of his ultimate goodness. As Joseph said in Genesis, You might have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So we we look at this, and we look at the the struggles that, that Israel was facing in Exodus, and we know this, God didn't miss it. He was watching the whole time. Look back at verse number 15. Because here we're going to go back to what the serpent-like king does when he says, I'm going to afflict them, but his affliction does not work. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah. Now, I got to pause right here just, just to say this briefly. It is so interesting. You could read the whole book of Exodus. You will not find the name of the Pharaoh. I listened to a one-hour podcast this week where men were debating what the name of the Pharaoh was in Egypt here and then when Moses led them out. And there's no conclusive evidence on who the pharaohs were on either time. But what we do know, who the two midwives were. What? Does that just not show you who's valuable to the kingdom? Verse 16. This is is Pharaoh's words. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. Uh Uh-oh. That's what we talked about today. The sanctity of human life. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So here we go. Another recurring theme. Serpent-like king approaching the woman. 
What happened the last time the serpent approached the woman? She listened to his words, and the curse came upon humanity. This time in the book of Exodus, the serpent-like king comes to the women, and they said, no. We will not do what you said, for we fear God. And instead of the curse coming to humanity, we see deliverance will be coming to humanity through the person of Moses because two women, who we know their names, stood up to the king and said, no, we fear God. Do you know why we have to celebrate a Sanctity of Life Sunday? Because our earthly leaders today are doing the same thing that Pharaoh wanted to do thousands of years ago and say, when you see the baby born, you can kill it. We have a king now who is trying, he's not really a king, but he thinks he is, but we have a king, we have a government who says, I will tell you what to do, and we need Christian believers not to play the role of Eve, we need Christian believers to play the role of these two midwives. No. I fear God. I believe his word. I believe his word when he said we're made in his image. I believe his word when he said he fashions us in the womb. I believe his word when he said he called Jeremiah to be a prophet from the womb. I believe his words when John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. So we know that. So we stand up to the evil king and says, no, 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 we fear God. And we do it with love, grace, and kindness. But we do it fully devoted to our God. Look at verse number 18. It says, So the king of Egypt called the midwives, this is after they refused, and said, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Well, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous. I'm not really sure exactly what that means in the Hebrew. But uh, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Now this is here again. Affliction. Now let me back this up. Another land, fruitful and multiplied. Affliction, you become servants, fruitful and multiplied. I'm going to kill the babies, fruitful and multiplied and grew very strong. Every time Moses or every time Pharaoh tries to afflict, God's word comes true. They will be fruitful and they will multiply because it's on me. We see it again. So, do you think Pharaoh figures it out? Like we see this recurrent theme, right? But he doesn't figure it out. Verse 21 says, And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. He, he cannot stop afflicting God's people. And God continues to allow his people to be fruitful and multiply. And this brilliant idea Pharaoh has, hey, throw them into the Nile. He has no idea. If you know the story of Moses, you, you know where we're going, right? Pharaoh has no idea that this command is going to be the ruin of his kingdom. Yeah, it's going to get good next week. Right. But, but, but let's just bring this, this theme down today, right? Where do you see Jesus in this passage? 
Because that's what we're looking for, right? We're continuing to come back and say, where's Jesus? Well, I see three times that Pharaoh has tried to defeat Israel, just like three times Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. I see the midwives who were faithful to God in spite of the king, and I see Jesus who stayed faithful to his father in spite of standing before kings like Pilate and Caesar and the chief priests. I see the affliction of God's people by the world for no, no other reason were they being afflicted than because they were receiving the blessings of God. And I see Jesus being afflicted for no other reason than because he was there as the blessing of God. And we see Jesus all over this, but, but my heart was drawn to one particular time in Jesus's life of working and weeping. The night before he goes to his greatest labor, the cross. And he kneels in the garden, and the Bible says that he sweat great drops of blood. He knows the labor, and in great sorrow, in great weeping, he comes to his father and said, Father, this cup you're asking me to drink it is the wrath of God against the sins of the world. And if I take this cup, it means you will separate yourself from me because I will become the sin of the people and you will have to turn from me. We've never felt this separation before. Please, if it be possible, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And when he does not receive an answer from the Father that the cup can pass from him, he stands up knowing that cup is his to drink. And he takes his labor of perfect righteousness that he has worked so, so hard for, and he gives it to someone who doesn't deserve it. And he takes the sins of the world that it was not his to take, and he brings them upon himself. And he works and weeps so we could enter into a relationship with a father and that doesn't start when we die and go to heaven so we can enter a relationship with a father that begins in the moment we turn to Christ but it's a relationship that provides hope and hopelessness that provides joy and sorrow and that provides peace and chaos he wept and worked so we could rejoice and rest. Whew. What a good God we have. We don't have a relationship with the Father to keep us from tragedy and heartbreak. We have a relationship so that someone will walk with us through the tragedy and heartbreak. God never pulls his people out of tribulation. God walks with his people through tribulation. And he is always aware of the affliction that they are facing. And, and today we, we, look at the, we look at the understanding of what Jesus says. And this is where we have to go back to knowing what the Bible says. When Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Set aside the command for a moment. And here's what we know. Jesus promised you would have enemies. Jesus promised you would be persecuted. We also react in those, but he promises we're going to have enemies and persecution. He says, don't be surprised when men hate you. That means people are going to hate you for following him. But he says that they hated me first. Right. 
So God is aware. Well, then the question that we come to then is why? Why? Why do we have to go through this? James answers it so beautifully. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you, get this, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May I ask, who would that describe? Perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's our Jesus, right? So you know the purpose of your trial? is to make you more like Jesus. So does that mean he's aware of it? Yeah. I mean, 1 Thessalonians 4 reminds us that we, we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope. We have a hope. It's a hope that I see just about every Sunday up here. I use my family regularly, and I hate to do it because I know they always feel like I'm pointing them out. But when my wife stands up here on Sundays, and she sings. I, 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 don't, I know there's six other people up here. I don't watch the other six people. I especially don't watch Dave Dooley. <laughs> I watch my wife's face. And for those of you who maybe haven't been here in the last six years, you may not know that five and a half years ago, my wife's Father, very unexpectedly and in the most tragic way one could pass, passed away. And I'm always watching her, especially when we, when we sing about something like we did near the end where we talk about rising with the saints. I have seen her sing Words of praise through tears of sorrow. I've watched it. I know many of you know Jamie well, and many of you know the circumstances in her life, and, but many of you don't, and you just see a pastor's wife standing up here thinking she, she must have the greatest life ever being married to Brian. There's got to be this thought, well, you know, that they have, they have the great life. I know the heart that she carries, the heaviness. And when she slips a hand up, it's not for show. It's not because she wants you to notice. It's because we are singing a truth to a God that brings hope when it's hopeless. To a God that knows while you labor for me, you are weeping, but there will be a day because of what I have done for you. There will be a day where your labors end and I will wipe every tear from your eye. The church family, you can work and you can weep. That's where we see God working the most. And this lady here who I live with, and every one of you in ways that you interact with people, you provide windows of whether or not God's word is true. 
is he really enough? And we don't provide the windows when everything's going great. We provide the windows to the promises of God when seemingly everything is falling apart. But we say, but he's in control. But we're going to close in just a moment by singing that song one more time. And if you're concerned about that, you just stay right where you are. If you, if, I'd love for you to sing up here, but I don't want you to feel like you need to. We're going to sing that song one more time. And I want you to understand that he sees you, he knows, he's working in you. And if our desire and our joy is to one day we'll stand before you with arms extended, knees bent, saying, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. There will be a day when that God wipes all tears from your eyes. And he says, enter into my rest, for I have done the labor for you. Man, that's good news. And if you don't know that God, if you don't have the relationship with that God, but you'd like to, I'm going to stand right down here. I'd love for you to share with me. I'd love for you to share. I, I want to know that. If you want someone, if you'd like to pray, the, the, this altar is open for prayer if you'd like to pray. I'd love to pray with you. If there's someone that you see you want to pray with, you come down and you're welcome to pray with them. I just want our church to know we might be a working and a weeping church, but we have a God who has worked and wept for us to offer rest and to wipe every tear. Would you pray with me? And then we'll stand and sing. Father, we thank you for who you are.